Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Fifty-two-year-old Daniel Brophy was infatuated with cooking and everything connected to food. In 2006, he began working at the Oregon Culinary Institute in Portland, Oregon, where he would go on to become its lead chef instructor, a position that paid him up to $60,000 a year. He loved to teach and he lived to cook. He was ahead of his time in the farm-to-table movement. Dan took his students to the ocean to dig clams and out to the forest to find mushrooms. In an interview, Dan told Oregon Live how he'd gotten hooked on foraging for mushrooms in the Willamette National Forest. And although he enjoyed cooking them, he was drawn to the adventure of finding them, and that he clipped an article from a newspaper, a story about a 93-year-old mushroom hunter, and stated, I hope that's me when I'm 93. Dan also liked to give back. Every Thanksgiving, he participated in a bake-off and afterwards personally delivered the pies he'd made. Meanwhile, in Wichita Falls in Texas, Nancy Crompton was born in 1950, the middle child in a family whose parents were both lawyers. After high school, she went to the University of Houston and majored in economics. She married a police officer, and when the relationship ended, she moved to Portland, Oregon. In the early 90s, she ran Chef de Jour, a catering company. She handled the administrative side of the company and did it well, earning a half a million dollars a year. Nancy enrolled at the Oregon Culinary Institute. That is where she met Dan. It was his first term teaching, and it was her first class. She was struck by Dan's intelligence, and the two became friends. A few years later, Dan's marriage ended, and Nancy and he became romantically involved. Five years later, in 1999, they got married. They were an example of opposites that attract. He liked to get up early and enjoy a cup of tea. She liked to sleep in and indulged her penchant for coffee at Starbucks. In the backyard, Dan had chickens <laughs> and a garden where he grew herbs that he took to school. In 2001, Nancy's business was hit hard by the devastating effects of the 911 terrorist attacks on the U.S., and she was forced to lay off almost half of her employees. Eventually, she left the catering business and started selling life insurance. While working as an agent, 
she sold herself policies, specifically life insurance, on her husband Dan, with her as a sole beneficiary. Nancy didn't let the change in occupation and loss of income get her down. She delved into another one of her passions, writing romance fiction with a little murderous suspense thrown in. In 2011, she was featured in an article for the website See Jane Publish, titled How to Murder Your Husband, in which she wrote, As a romantic suspense writer, I spend a lot of time thinking about murder, and consequently, about police procedure. After all, if the murderer is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. And let me say, clearly for the record, I don't like jumpsuits and orange isn't my color. She listed off motives for murdering a spouse. Perhaps they were cheating, fell in love with someone else, or maybe it was for financial reasons. She stated, Divorce is expensive, and do you really want to split your possessions? Or if you married for money, aren't you entitled to all of it? The drawback is, the police aren't stupid. They are looking at you first. So you have to be organized, ruthless, and very clever. She went on to discuss potential methods of murder and said, that arsenic is easy to obtain and easy to trace. It takes a month or two to kill someone. Plus, they are sick the entire time. Who wants to hang out with a sick husband? And as for hiring a hitman, she commented, Do you know a hitman? Neither do I. And an amazing number of hitmen rat you out to the police or blackmail you later. She said that guns were loud and messy and required skill. And as for knives, well, that was really personal and close up, with blood everywhere. Ew. And she stated that each type of murder leaves clues. She concluded with, I find it easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. I don't want to worry about blood and brains splattered on my walls. And really, I'm not good at remembering lies. But the thing I know about murder is that every one of us have it in him or her when pushed far enough. In 2013, Nancy self-published her first novel. She went on to write eight more that included titles such as The Wrong Lover, The Wrong Husband, and The Wrong Seal, in which she wrote, Slowly, he eased the gun out of the pocket. Each shot had to count. But Nancy's novels weren't a financial success. In 2017, Dan was forced to cash in some of his retirement savings and used $35,000 to pay off their credit card debt. Then she and Dan got $6,000 behind in mortgage payments. 
But through it all, Nancy continued to pay the life insurance that had mounted to a staggering $16,000 that year. Their marriage was beginning to splinter. Dan was content with his lifestyle, but Nancy wanted more. After 27 years together, she wanted to sell their home and travel the world. But she knew Dan would never agree. So she devised a plan to go without him. In December 2017, as winter was setting in and Christmas was around the corner, Nancy searched the internet for a ghost gun. Now you may wonder what that is, because I had never heard of it either. It's a homemade weapon that is not registered and untraceable. Kits can be bought online without a background check or a waiting period. A regular gun will have a serial number, but not a ghost gun. Law enforcement have no idea the gun exists. In February 2018, Dan and Nancy attended a gun show. A recent shooting at a school in Florida prompted them to purchase a gun for self-protection. Afterwards, they quickly lost interest in the Glock 17 9mm and didn't even bother to buy ammunition. It was all part of Nancy's plan. She went on eBay and purchased his slide and barrel for the Glock 17. Using their shared iTunes account, she searched and found an article on 10 ways to cover up a murder. Nancy swapped out the slide and barrel she'd purchased with the one in the new Glock and deleted her eBay account. Then she waited, waited for the perfect time to carry out the perfect murder. That day arrived on June 2nd. Court records reveal that Nancy left the house just after 6 a.m., armed with a Glock. She drove her minivan to the university and circled around the block numerous times before she parked. Dan left their house an hour later and arrived at the school and parked his pickup truck near the door. It was 7.20 a.m. He turned off the alarm and began his daily routine. He stood at the sink, turned the tap on, and watched the water flow. He put ice buckets underneath and watched as they began to fill. Nancy crept up behind her husband, raised a Glock 9mm, and without hesitation, pulled the trigger. That bullet was loud as it pummeled into his back, penetrated his spine, and pierced his heart. Dan fell to the floor, likely paralyzed. Nancy calmly walked over, and the words she'd written in her novel rang in her head. Each shot had to count. She fired a second shot directly into his heart. 
Dan, the love of her life, was dead at 63. Nancy fled, leaving behind the two 9mm shell casings. She didn't bother to take his wallet, keys, or cell phone to try and make it look like a robbery. Instead, she rushed out to her minivan and at 7.28 a.m. raced down Jefferson Street and drove home. She quickly swapped out the sliding barrel and the Glock and waited for the phone call she knew would come. At 7.30 a.m., a co-worker arrived at the university. Around 8 a.m., she led the students into the building. It was then that a student discovered Dan. Immediately, they called 911, and another student started CPR. When medics arrived, they knew it was too late and contacted police. Police called Nancy and asked her to come to the university. As is often custom, when she arrived, her vehicle was photographed by crime scene investigators. Detectives asked Nancy where she was that morning, and she replied that she was home in bed, writing. They asked if Dan had any enemies or if he'd brought a gun to work for protection. Nancy told them her husband had no enemies, and that although they'd bought a Glock 9mm handgun, neither of them had used it. Detectives asked Nancy if they could retrieve the firearm from their home, and she readily agreed. Authorities quickly determined that the two shell casings at the scene were 9mm and were fired from the same gun, and that gun was likely a Glock because of the unique impression that was left on the primer. Police quickly ruled out a robbery and began to canvass the area for surveillance cameras. The university had no cameras inside or outside, but they found local businesses in the area who did. And when they reviewed the video, they noticed a minivan similar to the one Nancy had driven. Within hours, Nancy went from being a grieving widow to their main suspect. The next day, Nancy announced Dan's death on Facebook. The Statesman Journal reported that she said she was struggling to make sense of everything right now, and that while she appreciated everyone's loving responses, she was overwhelmed. A few days later, Nancy contacted detectives, requesting they provide her with a letter stating that she was not a suspect so that she could give it to the life insurance company to claim Dan's $40,000 life insurance. But detectives didn't write that letter. Instead, they focused their investigation on the insurance policy. That's when they discovered that Nancy had taken out not just one policy, but many, and that they totaled over $350,000, in addition to the $300,000 they had equity in their home. Then they discovered that Nancy 
had filed a workers' compensation claim because Dan had been killed at work and she was listed as his beneficiary. She was entitled to his accidental death benefit. The total profit from Dan's death had now risen to just over $1.1 million. Investigators spent three months compiling their evidence against Nancy. They were never able to recover the slide and barrel used in the murder, but they had enough evidence without it. On September 5th, she was arrested on accusation of murder and unlawful use of a firearm. When she was arrested, she said to police, You must think I killed my husband. Dan and Nancy's friends and neighbors were in disbelief. No one believed Nancy could be responsible, and Dan's own family said they were in shock and didn't believe it. Nancy remained in custody while waiting for her trial. After four years, it began in April 2022. The prosecutor stated her motive was greed. And although the judge did not allow into evidence her essay from years earlier on how to murder your husband, the prosecutors alluded to it when 71-year-old Nancy took the stand. Her defense lawyer suggested an unidentified homeless person killed Dan in a botched robbery attempt and tried to sway the jurors by saying the internet search for a ghost gun was part of her research for a novel and that she didn't lie to police when she said she was home writing, but rather an expert testified that she was suffering from retrograde amnesia and had simply forgot the details of that morning. After seven weeks of testimony, the video surveillance and insurance policies were overwhelming evidence, and the jury of five men and seven women found Nancy guilty of second-degree murder. Nancy displayed no reaction to the verdict. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Nancy's essay would turn out to be a failure, just like her novels. Murder did not set her free, and she is indeed wearing an orange jumpsuit. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Dellen Millard. Born into a life of wealth and privilege, Dellen soared high, setting a flying record at the age of 14, but then grounded himself into a life of crime and drugs. He got away with two murders, but his third got him caught. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon 
PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>